It was uh, all a mess. The cars were stuck, and there was a, a huge number of uh, trucks. Sometimes you were completely surrounded by big trucks, and you could only see uh, well one meter to each side and uh, two meters in front and back. That's Søren Hansen. He's been a city planner in Copenhagen for more than 30 years. And he's a globally renowned city planner with a focus on mobility. Imagine him looking out the window in his taxi in Manila and seeing no one, not a car, not a bus, not a taxi, no one moving in traffic at all. It just woke my curiosity. So I, I immediately started thinking, uh, how can this situation be, be solved? because it must be solved. No kidding. Cities are growing like never before. Today, just over half the planet lives in a city. By 2030, the figure will have risen to 60%, according to the UN. And in cities such as Manila, the capital of the Philippines, with its large and growing middle class, there are more and more cars piling onto the streets every day. And you can see the problem with all that. Increased greenhouse gas emissions, more noise, worsening air pollution. There's also the huge economic cost, the lack of productivity brought on by all that congestion. So the question is simple. How can cities such as Manila reduce congestion, noise and carbon dioxide emissions and at the same time increase air quality, livability and economic productivity? I'm James Clasper. And you're listening to the first episode of Ingenuity Talks, a ramble podcast about ideas that can help solve global problems. In this episode, we're going to try and answer that question. How do we get cities moving? And to find out, we're going to Copenhagen. The story begins here in Copenhagen for two reasons. Actually, make that three. First, the Danish capital is home to Rambol, the consultancy company that works on large-scale projects all around the world. Second, it's where I decided to make my home a few years ago, after growing up in London. Why? Well, it certainly wasn't for the weather. No, it was for Copenhagen's quality of life. It's fast-flowing cycle lanes, its clean harbour, its multiple green spaces, and its striking modern architecture. Though Copenhagen doesn't look much like Manila, we can learn a lot from it about how to make fast-growing and increasingly congested cities more livable, more sustainable, and easier to get around. You see, the Danish capital is widely known today as one of the world's most livable cities, and it's a city where most residents use a bike rather than a car. But here's the thing. It hasn't always been like that. And one person who remembers it well is Søren Hansen, the city planner we met at the beginning of the episode. You see, when Søren began his career back in the 1980s, Copenhagen was an industrial city, a city close to bankruptcy, a city that was a lot less livable than it is today. And as uh, soon as uh, people... Uh created a family uh, or got their masters uh, from the universities, they flee out of uh, Copenhagen. And then they started uh, commuting back to, to Copenhagen for some of the, 
jobs in in Copenhagen. So actually, they created traffic by moving out of Copenhagen and uh, and then starting commuting back to uh, to Copenhagen again. It was uh, quite obvious that Copenhagen has to uh, to change because it was uh, run down. And it certainly wasn't the, the bicycling city that it is today. Definitely not. Uh, it was cars all over. Uh, the city was planned for cars. In this city of cars, city planners were mainly focused on car traffic. In other words, more lanes, more parking. But as Søren Hansen explains, change was afoot. The oil crisis of the early 1970s had led to much higher petrol prices. And um, it uh, showed very clearly that uh, we were so dependent on uh, fossil fuel. And we had to bring in diversity in, in our consumption of uh, fuel and use of uh, different uh, fuels. So we started a, a complete movement of diversifying the city and the country. We uh, coordinated the road transportation, the bicycle transportation, the, uh, pedestrians, and uh, and also the uh, public transport system. It was all integrated into uh, into one one coherent set of uh, rules. And, and integration is a, the key word, I think, that particular forms of transport or, or decisions that get made shouldn't be made in in isolation. They have to be integrated with each other. Yes. That kind of thinking, that's crucial to Copenhagen's success. And and so is that kind of thinking, would would that count as, as holistic thinking in, in, in your view? If you're working holistically uh, with a project, uh, you need to look at, at it from many different aspects. You have to look at any project from a economic, from a, an, an environmental, and from a social uh, perspective. That's a good starting point. Okay, so let's talk about what other cities um, are learning from Copenhagen. So, so, so talk about that. You know, what, you know, who comes and, and, and what do you show them? The last year, I think I have had uh, 50 delegations from all around the world, from U.S., cities in uh, in in Europe and uh, a lot of uh, people are coming from uh, from Asia from uh, Beijing from from Seoul Singapore a lot of the big uh, big cities in Asia are coming and what are the important lessons you're trying to get them to to take away in Asia the population is growing uh, the economic is uh, is growing and the middle class is uh, exploding at the mo- moment so all the bigger Asian uh, cities, they have uh, challenges uh, in, in their development of the city and their accommodation. In China, they have uh, had big schemes where they wanted to, to build new cities and they didn't have so much uh, success with uh, many of them. Uh, they have become uh, ghost cities, a city built for half a million people with nobody living in them because they are just not livable. People cannot live in them without getting mentally sick. So they are completely empty. And they have maybe uh, 10, 20 of these uh, ghost cities, which is a big, actually, uh, gives a big pressure on the Chinese economy. So they are now coming to a position where they are considering, how can we do this better? And they're looking around the world and uh, and seeing where can we find uh, another way of building cities. And Copenhagen is uh, popping up as number one they are coming to uh, to Copenhagen to see uh, what we did. And so what do you show them? Well, uh, I show them that uh, Copenhagen in uh, the 1980s was completely run down. 
I have some uh, some nasty old uh, photographs uh, which I show them just to tell them that well it takes 30 years it takes a while to make a transition and I try to explain them the concept of mobility and the whole uh, whole transportation or, or mobility system we have in in, in Copenhagen uh, which is different from their thinking of uh, planning for traffic can you explain what that means so well uh, traffic is uh, is the uh, objects driving around but planning for for mobility uh, then you are planning for the individual person um and i mean what's the reaction like so when when you have delegations from <coughs> beijing and singapore and seoul i mean how do they react when they see copenhagen in the flash so to speak well uh, they are really impressed they can see that uh, this is copenhagen has done the right thing uh, and they would definitely like to uh, to do that in uh, back in china but 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 their mindset has to change they say we would like to buy that thing you have in uh, copenhagen bring that uh, that thing to to us uh, then we'll build it but that's not the way it works because it's all always uh, based on the local context so you cannot uh, copy uh, Ørsted or Nordhavn and build it in in China it will be a disaster so it's a mindset it's a uh, planning principles translated into the local context that's what we can bring to uh, to China and that's what what we are telling them and now they're coming back and say okay then bring that to us so uh, so we have we have now uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, urban development projects in in China where we're trying to translate our livability concepts into a Chinese context uh, together with the Chinese people that are going to implement it there's a there's a a kind of a an all too easy comeback uh, when uh, someone says oh you know cities should model themselves on Copenhagen and that's well Copenhagen's a city of a million people and it's you know pancake flat and of course you can cycle around it and uh, you know it, it's impossible to translate or, or 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 carry over the ideas from Copenhagen to a city of 10 20 million people what's i mean what's the kind of the comeback uh, to that from uh, from your perspective well of course uh, it's a completely different conditions and that's why it's so important that we are focusing on the local context uh, because the local context is defining what we can do we have difficult conditions in Denmark too. We have uh, snow in the winter. We have uh, minus ten degrees. We have uh, storm and rain and uh, and the cold weather in uh, in Denmark. So uh, what we bring to them is that uh, well, it's not just about uh, physical changes. It's also about setting up a, a system where you can make people take ownership uh, of a transition uh, to a certain point. Because if nobody takes ownership of the plan. It's uh, completely obsolete. If you are designing for people, you need to know what concerns them. But then here's a question for you regarding how well you think it translates, because um, in other countries, there's maybe less of a, an egalitarian approach to decision making, and it's much more top down. So what's your take on, on the, 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 the likelihood of, of uh, success of holistic thinking in countries or cities where it is very top down and it's much less likely that you're going to see mm. interest groups and civil society round the table making decisions about what's best for people 
That's right. That's right. Um, but uh, but in any society, no matter what, people are so and very interested in their living conditions, and they make their statements, even though it's completely top down. I did a, a master plan for uh, the Emirate of uh, Fujairah, uh, which is uh, number five in the row of uh, the seven uh, Emirates in uh, in Middle East, and it it is really top down. And as part of this uh, this master plan, we had uh, public hearings. There were about forty, uh, fifty people uh, to each of the meetings, and they they gave us uh, very, very good input. And they had really strong opinions on how they would like their future and the conditions for their future to be. It was really, really uh, interesting and uh, exciting to to see. Also, in in that kind of uh, a country. And the women, uh, which I had the prejudice that uh, they didn't say anything and they were kept home and uh, stowed away, but uh, they were really upfront and uh, discussed and uh, were really excited and engaged in in, in this society discussion. Uh, so, in any place of the world, people are uh, very very interested in their living conditions. So intelligent thinking about long-term strategies for cities it is now a, a, an increasingly so an export along with with danish bacon danish butter and uh and the famous lager yeah uh which we shall not name so far we've been talking about bike lanes and roads but this is the 21st century smart mobility isn't just about bricks and mortar it's about digital tools as well. And to see what that means, you only have to look at what's happening in Helsinki. Here, in the capital of Finland, they're experimenting with a smart solution to a somewhat self-perpetuating problem. Today, the parents are giving the lift to pupils to the school while they, they think that it's not safe to walk there and it's not safe to walk there because they drive there. <laughs> because the parents are there driving. That's Aino Mensinen. She's the service manager for digitalization and innovations at Rambol, Finland. And she's been a huge part of implementing the Via Smart system. So Via Smart shows you the map of your own city or, or your community. And the streets and the roads are colored based on their risk indexes. For example, green color indicates that it's safe to walk along the street. Everybody can walk there. Purple color shows that the younger pupils, like those who are at first or second grade, they shouldn't walk along the street, but older pupils, they may walk. Black color then indicates that no one should walk there. In Finland, schools are obliged to provide bus transport for school children if they live more than three kilometers from their school or if the route is deemed too dangerous. But here's the question. How do you determine whether the road is safe enough for school children to walk along? So the first one is very easy. You just measure the distance. But the headache arises because of the second point. How do I judge whether the road is dangerous or not? How do I make decisions that are equal to all pupils? How do I convince my boss that I have used the budget wisely and made unbiased decisions? 
well, the Via Smart is, is for that headache. The software assesses the traffic risk for pedestrians, and it's based on 12 parameters. H is one, and the lights and width of the sidewalk and speed limit, I can tell you that. Via Smart has been a huge success in Finland, and it's now being used in at least 160 towns. And I know reckons it could be bigger still. One thing that I haven't told yet is is that what we want to do in the future is to have this kind of a tool for the urban planners so they can shape safe cities. This is all what, what Via Smirt is about. It It is about livable, walkable city. People are sitting too, too much today, as they say. And, and also it's it's for your mind. So our dream is to design a tool that promotes the walkability, shape the safe cities. Digital tools like Via Smart offer new ways to integrate cities and improve their quality of life. For now though, smart solutions are the exception, not the rule. Actually, when we look around the world, we don't have that many uh, smart solutions uh, implemented because people maybe don't know what uh, the implication of a smart city is. And that's actually the, the topic of uh, many delegations coming to us. I, I think 20 delegations of the 50 I had was about uh, smart cities. And people came from uh, Singapore, uh, which we consider as one of the smartest cities in the world, and they have implemented smart uh, and digital solutions uh, for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, but they ask us, uh, what is a smart city? And my answer to them is that, uh, well, a smart city is not about infrastructure. It's not about fiber networks. It is not about sensors, uh, big data, big number crunchers, uh, big platforms which can uh, distribute data to, uh, to everybody. That's not what a smart city is about. A smart city is only a smart city if it, uh, if it is based on a smart strategy. For example, the GPS in our cars. It's really smart. It's a smart city solution that uh, you have a GPS in your car and uh, and when you're driving uh, and, and, and you reach a traffic queue, this uh, GPS system might uh, redirect you around this traffic queue so your your commute will be, uh, be quicker. That's really smart. But it might be really stupid because if the redirection brings you passing a, a school at 8 o'clock in the morning where all the pupils are are going to school, you might increase the uh, risk of uh, accidents between cars and, uh, and the pupils. You might uh, redirect uh, uh, big trucks through uh, roads that are not built to carry uh, big uh, trucks. So the uh, roads will be uh, broken down. So if you put a strategy on top of the GPS system saying that you can only redirect cars to other routes that uh, is prepared for this kind of traffic, then it might be a, a smart city solution, but only then. Has the has the, the sort of the orthodoxy of thinking about traffic planning changed over the years to become more smart mobility focused? Yes, definitely. In uh, in Denmark, we are definitely uh, mo- have definitely moved from working into silos to working uh, across silos in the transportation planning and uh, and urban planning. So. What do you do today that's different to to your role in urban planning 25, 30 years ago? 
I think I do uh, quite a lot uh, different. I was a, a traffic planner when I started. I drew uh, road constructions and uh, I didn't think about who was driving on the roads. Uh, but, but that has uh, definitely changed. I, I assume that Copenhagen doesn't have all the answers and it's not uh, the single city that, that uh, other cities should, should come and learn from, although there is plenty to learn from it. So wh- where else do you find inspiration or ideas or, or, or learnings? I definitely find inspiration in Asia because uh, in Asia is where the, the need for innovation is. Uh, so they have to innovate. Huge uh, innovations are coming from, uh, from Asia at the moment. And we are not in Europe and in the West aware of what is happening there. We have to open our eyes now. They are working with uh, drones and robots and uh, different uh, kinds of uh, mobility, driverless mobility uh, systems, which is changing the world. I I have a question. Um, It's quite overarching everything, I suppose. But um, from your point of view, What's the biggest problem you're aiming to solve through your work? It has changed uh, over time. Uh, at, at this moment, uh, it is climate change. It is uh, this uh, horrible uh, situation uh, where we are about to destroy our, our planet, uh, basically. Uh, and, uh, and, and what I really are scared about is if it's too late. Climate change is the uh, overarching problem we have to to solve now. It has to be uh, the main priority in all we're doing from now on and and forward. You said earlier that livability is the the objective, the the aim. But obviously, as you say, climate change is the overarching problem. Do you think we can make our cities more climate resilient by making them more livable? I mean, is that a good enough overlap to say we're going to make our cities more livable and that means making them more climate resilient? Yeah, there's a, a correlation uh, between livability and uh, and uh, climate resiliency because uh, because the most uh, sustainable way of uh, living is in uh, in cities. Uh, so if, if, if you uh, live in uh, compact uh, cities, you have the least use of... Uh, of fuels uh, and uh, and resources, and uh, and and to create um, a livable city, um, re- retaining people in the city instead of spreading uh, people out and living in in the sprawl, will also uh, have an impact on our um, uh, greenhouse gases uh, emissions. You've been listening to the first episode of Ingenuity Talks. Head to Ramble's Ingenuity homepage for show notes, including links to some of the topics discussed today. This podcast was produced by Lulpo in collaboration with Ramble. The sound design was produced by Christian Mondra. In the next episode, we're going to see how engineering can help cut the cost of offshore windmills and in so doing, accelerate the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy.